For tonight, I want to have you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. And as we've been doing in this little series here, this is just mostly a jumping off point for us. We're in premillennial foundations. And, you know, I had to make a decision early on at Grace Bible Church when, when I got here a decade ago. And that decision was that I didn't ever want to preach and teach to the lowest common denominator. I, I didn't want to find the person who understood the least and design messages to that person and to everyone. I am expecting by the Lord's grace that people get caught up. And I also decided that educating the body of Christ is okay. That it's okay to give you definitions. It's okay to teach you things and not just uh, assume that somehow I have to dumb down the Bible for you. I think we need to use our minds. And so I'm hopeful to do my part with that. And premillennial foundations... We're looking at, we looked first at the legacy of premillennialism for a couple of weeks. Where do we come from? It is the charge that, well, uh, premillennial theology, dispensationalism was invented in 1825 by uh, John Nelson Darby. Is that true? And we looked at that and pretty much blew that out of the water. Um, premillennialism goes not only back to the apostles and to Christ, but to Jewish eschatology before the time of Christ. So we looked at that. Then we began outlining the methods Basically, we're asking the question, how do we arrive at the theological conclusions of premillennialism? The belief that in the future, Christ will physically return. He will set up an intermediate kingdom on earth. He will reign for a thousand years and then bring about the final judgment of the lost in the final state. Why do we believe this? Do you just trust me? Well, don't do that because I'm just a fallible human. All I have is way, by way of authority is the word of God. Do we believe this because the church has always believed that? Do we believe this for any other reason? I, I want you to understand why we believe what we believe. And last time I emphasized how important it is that you be able to trust what the Bible says without having to have 100% reliance on theologians to explain implied or inferred theological concepts upon which they build this entire lens that now you have to view Scripture through, but you don't know where they came up with the lens. And not only is this a pattern that Protestants tried to get away from in the Reformation, the abuse of the Roman Catholic religion of literally trying to keep the Bible out of the hands of the common person, but what we saw last time is that this thought of having to have theologians to explain the true and real meaning of the Bible to you, it actually separates you from the Word of God. And it's vitally important that that not happen. God called Jeremiah to proclaim prophetic truth to the nation of Judah concerning the coming judgment of God for the covenant treachery of God's people. And in describing what the Word of God was going to do, God told Jeremiah that the Scriptures were to do six things. Jeremiah 1 verse 10. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms. And here are the six things. To uproot and to tear down, to cause to perish and to pull down, to build and to plant. That's the, what the word of God does. It uproots, tears down, causes to perish, pulls down, builds and plants. And you can see the obvious progression here. Tearing down the pride and falsehoods of wicked people in need of repentance. And then building into them truth. Implanting in them the hearts, into their hearts, the certainties of God. The first four are demolition of the heart. And the last two are the rebuilding of the heart. And Jeremiah certainly would uproot, tear down, cause to perish, pull down. And then he would build and plant. Turn over to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 27, and here we get the full-orbed plan of God for Israel. And through the prophetic word, he would tear them apart in discipline. He would exile them in Babylon. Then he would build and he would plant. Jeremiah 31, 27, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it will be that I have watched over them to uproot, to tear down, to pull down, to destroy, and to bring calamity. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares Yahweh. So Israel would be torn down through punishment. But how would they be built up? How would they be planted? Verse 31. 
Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And of course, as New Covenant believers, with the benefit of the New Testament revelation, you hear the echoes of Jesus' words. This is the cup of the New Covenant. You hear him teaching in John 14, I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate. He will be with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. And so you you hear this. I begin here tonight because it's so important that the clarity of the word of God not be separated from God's people. That the word of God must be accessible to you. Only with the clarity of the word of God can we understand the truths which in our own hearts uproot and tear down, cause to perish, pull down, and then build and plant. And I said this last time, I'm not trying to get anybody to be premillennial. I'm trying to get people to read the Bible honestly and with integrity, and you will become premillennial if you'll do that. Because it leads to its own conclusions, and I'm going to show you that as we go. But by understanding the methods of premillennialism, how do we come to our understanding of the end times, but more importantly, our understanding of how we understand the Bible as a whole, you'll see that these truths are fully accessible to you. They're not dependent upon theologians to give you a preconceived lens through which to view the Bible. Now, I did this last time and I think it's worth repeating just to be certain we're speaking the same language. Let me briefly remind you again of a few definitions. Premillennialism simply speaks of the belief that Christ returns prior to the setting up of his kingdom and there's obviously lots of other nuances to that, but that's the basic core. Christ returns prior to setting up his kingdom. We did a whole mini-series on amillennialism because that's taking the church by storm today. Amillennialism says that Christ is reigning over the earth now and that his kingdom has been set up now through the church, that the church is essentially the new Israel. The promises of the Old Testament to Israel are now transferred to the church because Israel crucified Christ. That is amillennialism. And then we talked briefly about postmillennialism, which interestingly, even just a few years ago, was just about dead, but it's making a huge resurgence again now. That the spread of the gospel will transform the world until the world is Christianized and the kingdom comes and then Christ will return after a glorious kingdom has been here. He's just sort of the icing on the cake. And then we talk about dispensationalism, which goes right along with premillennialism. The two are very much hand in hand. Dispensationalism is just simply the belief that the Bible is one unified story with the redemptive plan of God carried out in various eras. But that's not even the most important part. The most important features of dispensationalism include that we, that we rely on a Bible study method, a hermeneutic, that doesn't default to spiritualizing texts of prophecy, of making them mean something they don't mean. And that's our whole topic tonight. We also see in dispensationalism a future for literal Israel as the saved, lead, actual nation of the world and A distinction between Israel and the church. The church being the body of believers between Pentecost and the rapture or the second coming, depending on what view of the rapture you take. And that's dispensationalism. But most important for our time together tonight, the word we should not be afraid of, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just simply Bible study methods or a method for interpreting really any literature. And And my goal is the same as it was last time. It's really the same as it is every week. And that is to make the word of God accessible. To let you know that you can trust your Bible at face value. That you may trust that what you read is what God intended to say the first time. And the meanings aren't so ridiculously obscure that only a a select few can actually understand them. And that you have to import theologians from Germany or from England to come and tell you what the Bible actually means. I'm passionate about that, that the Bible at your kitchen table is a dangerous tool in the hand of God to take souls for the kingdom. That you don't 
have to be told, here's the lens through which to read the Bible. You do have to be taught how to understand the Bible, but then you can understand it for yourself. Now, I mentioned this last time. I think it would be reasonable for you to be asking yourself, or maybe whispering to the person next to you, why am I being subjected to a sermon, even a two-part sermon, on Bible study methods? What kind of sermon is that? And I understand the strategy of trying to make your exit when I look down at my notes, but you know I'm going to look up and I will see you. Here's why it's so important. Your theology determines everything in your life. It determines how you live your life. It determines how you treat people around you. It determines how you treat your husband, your wife, your kids, how you live before the Lord. And so answering the question of how do I determine my theology, this is vital. This is, this is imperative. And as premillennialists, our basic point of contention with any theological system other than premillennialism is that you must get the order of theology and hermeneutics correct. A theological viewpoint, an opinion on a lens through which to read Scripture is not a hermeneutic. It's not a Bible study system. You can't mix those two up. Why is that? Because now you're interpreting the Bible according to a theological system that you've chosen to believe. That doesn't work. I told you last time we would look at five broad topics to show you the methods of premillennialism so that you can have confidence that you know what the Bible teaches. And last time we did the first three. We did the first one, the slippery slope of separating God's people from God's word. The second topic was a modern day example of the slippery slope. And then we looked at the basic principles of premillennial hermeneutics and we We boil this down to four principles that you interpret grammatically, you interpret contextually, you interpret Scripture with Scripture, and you interpret progressively. And I ask the question that I think burns in our hearts. The big question is, but how do I interpret prophecy? One-third of our Bible is, is prophecy. How do I interpret prophecy? And the first part of the answer is, Interpret grammatically, contextually, scripture to scripture, progressively. You don't change the rules just because it gets a little dicier. But I understand the question because prophecy is the crux, it's the center of the whole debate between premillennialism and every other alternative theological system. And, and you might say, well, this isn't any big deal. This is just, a, uh, this is just kind of a, a, a dusty theological argument. No, this impacts the church at a great level. I was in a leadership meeting with leaders of uh, regional groups of pastors around the world um, this past week via a Zoom call. And one dear brother from the UK, um, the UK, if you're a Christian in the UK, you're almost exclusively amillennial. And this brother was saying how hard it is to find pastors and other churches that will fellowship with him because he's premillennial and they make fun of him and they, they denigrate him and they treat him like he just was just dragged out of the backwoods of Kentucky somewhere. It is a, it is a point of contention in the church. It's a point of arrogance particularly with amillennialists who look down on premillennialism as some sort of backwoods belief. And so I want you to understand how to answer these questions, and that's why we're taking such an extended time. And so tonight we'll finish the last two of the five topics and look together first at the specific principles of interpreting Bible prophecy. When you're reading the book of Isaiah, when you're reading Jeremiah, when you're reading Daniel, how do you, what do you do with that? How do you deal with this? And then second, I'd like to finish this evening with what I'll just call the appeal of premillennialism. The appeal of premillennialism. Why why it's so attractive to us. But first, I want to get into the weeds for a little while. And I think this is important for you. And I know you can handle this. Specific principles of interpreting Bible prophecy. and, And all of these principles respect the principle of exegesis. That we receive out of the text. We don't insert something into it. We simply receive out of it. These are important principles for you because as you're reading your Bible in the prophetic portions, which is a significant portion of the Bible, the Old Testament especially, this is not me teaching you how to read the Bible through a theological lens. That is not the case at all. Rather, it's how to read the Bible with a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic so that you naturally are looking for the most important thing you can look for in a Bible book or a Bible passage, and that is the original intention of the author. Authorial intent is at the top of everything. 
You're looking for God's intentions. They never change. And so the, the blessing of Scripture revealing the plan of God, rather than seeming to conceal the plan of God, can be yours. I, I don't want the Bible to seem mysterious. I want it to be opened up to you. Now, before I get into the principles of interpreting Bible prophecy, I want to just address the elephant in the room. And if you don't know what it is, I'll tell you what it is. I just want to mention that in the dispensational camp, there are many times the instance of us being unfairly accused of ignoring the presence of symbolism in the Bible. Symbolism does exist. Metaphors do exist. But does that mean that Israel now becomes a symbol for the church or that Christ's reign on earth is symbolic and not a literal earthly reign? There's a difference between acknowledging the presence of symbolism in the Bible and studying it appropriately and somehow that symbolism giving the interpreter a free hand to create symbolism where a little literal interpretation ought to work. It's an unfair accusation to say that dispensationalists minimize or ignore symbolism in the Bible. No one reading the Bible at face value thinks that Jesus has hinges attached to his body. You know, what, what are you talking about? Well, he said in John 10, I am the door. Since we don't believe in symbolism, he must have hinges. We don't see him walking around picking leaves off of his arm because he is the true vine. As he said in John 15. Opponents of premillennialism accuse premillennialists of being overly literal and not recognizing that the Bible has symbols, types, and figures of speech. That's what's called a straw man argument, where you're creating an argument that doesn't actually exist. You know how many premillennial theologians going all the way back to the apostles hold to that sort of ignorance that there are no symbols or metaphors in the Bible? Zero. There are none. So let's get into this, and I believe in you. I believe this will be a benefit to you as you read prophecy. I want to go through the seven principles of interpreting prophecy, or if you prefer, how to read Bible prophecy for all it's worth. Now, once in a while, as a preacher, I'm allowed to take the liberty of a bad pun. So here's our bad pun for the night, that reading prophecy can be like navigating a stormy sea. So I'm going to give you the seven C's of interpreting prophecy. There it is. We got it over with. We can mark it off the list. The first C, the principle of consistency. The principle of consistency. And by the way, I'm going to go into these in deep detail, but then I'm going to boil it down to a couple of sentences for all of them in case you want more of the, the uh, cliff note version. The principle of consistency says that hermeneutics must stay the same. It betrays a loyalty to a theological system rather than loyalty to the Bible to change your methods for prophecy. Now, for example, if hundreds of prophecies concerning the first advent of Christ are taken literally because we can see from the Gospels that they're literal, how is it possible then to spiritualize, to make into metaphors, the prophecies concerning Christ's second coming and the many descriptions of his judgment and his reign on the earth? And I want to give you a lengthy example. Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, what is this? This is one huge prophecy of something that is about to happen. A baby will be conceived in her womb. Literal. We know that. It will be a boy. You will bear a son. Verse 31. Literal. We know that. You shall name him Jesus. Literal. We know that. He will be great. That's literal. We know that. He shall be called the Son of the Most High. That's literal. The Holy Spirit will come upon you to, to marry. That's literal. 
the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob, that is Israel, forever. And there will be no end to his kingdom. Oh, that's supposed to be figurative. That's symbolic. Really. What clues in the text tell you that it's symbolic? There's nothing in the text to tell you that except a preconceived theological notion that you bring to the Bible. In fact, the pressure is pretty heavy, isn't it, to interpret literally because there's all those other prophecies that are all literal. The only thing that makes that reign of Christ on earth symbolic is a theological system which tells you to read it that way. That is lack of integrity in reading the text. Here's a second principle, the principle of comparison. The principle of comparison. 2 Peter 1.20 says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. One's own, literally, private interpretation. That every prophecy is part of a grand plan of God, and therefore there's a relationship between all the parts that must be kept in mind. There must be comparison. No prophet received the full revelation of God, but every prophet was given some pieces which fit together into the grand redemptive plan of God. Now, I don't know about you. Aren't you glad you have a completed Bible? We have all the pieces. And it would cause other chaos, and it has, to decide, listen carefully, that some parts in the Old Testament have changed and other parts have stayed the same. That's like taking two jigsaw puzzles and mixing them together and saying, make one puzzle. for That doesn't work. Here's a third principle, the principle of conformity. The principle of conformity. Applications of prophecy must conform to the single interpretation. That there's one interpretation of a prophecy, which might include double fulfillment, but one interpretation. But there can be multitudes of applications, but they must Submit to that one interpretation. But both are important. And I'll explain why here. I'll give you an example. Then I'll explain why. Psalm 126, 122 rather, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. What's the interpretation of Psalm 122, 6? Briefly, Jerusalem as the head of Israel is beloved of God. And the follower of God is commanded to pray for Israel and to pray for her future. This is a psalm of David. David asks for a blessing on all those who love Israel. This is completely consistent, by the way, with the Abrahamic covenant in which God promises Abraham that all who bless him and his people will be blessed. That's the interpretation. What's a good application? God blesses those who support and love his people. That's a clear application. But to ignore interpretation for application will eventually make you amillennial. Because you're ignoring the storyline of God's blessing on Israel and that, that storyline gets put into mothballs as being irrelevant and now you're just applicational. And on the other side, to be fair, to ignore application for interpretation is to be more consumed with the interpretation of prophecy than living a life that's pleasing to the Lord in light of that prophetic word. You have to have both. And I have to say that, that uh, dispensationalists are probably more guilty of being so in tune with the interpretation, and they forget that there's application to prophecy. So we don't want to make that mistake. Here's a fourth principle. We'll call it the principle of correlation. The principle of correlation. Figures of speech, symbolism, metaphors, these are used all over in prophecy, but it always correlates to something real, something in reality, something tangible. 1 Peter 5.8 says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. This doesn't mean that the devil is a lion, but it's a picture which instantly teaches you one large truth in one phrase. The armor of God passage in Ephesians 6 is completely made up of figures of speech, of metaphors. For example, the breastplate is righteousness. It's not an actual piece of armor, but it's a representation of the righteous godly deeds of the saints. You have the shield This represents faith in the Lord, not an actual shield, but a representation of actual faith. You have the helmet, which is the truth of the gospel and the assurance of salvation. Not an actual helmet, but it's a representation of the reality of salvation. And on the negative side, you have the flaming arrows of the evil one, the spiritual attacks of Satan. These aren't actual arrows, but a representation of the nature of his attacks. What do flaming arrows do? They stick and they burn. So the principle of correlation, 
If you simply say, well, this is symbolic and there's no correlation, there's no reality to the the figure of speech, then you're off base. Here's the fifth principle, the principle of compliance. The principle of compliance. That is that the interpreter doesn't just to get decide that something literal is now a figure of speech. We don't get to do that. No matter how godly, no matter how educated, no matter how in tune with the Spirit of God you are, if you want to use that phrase, I'll give you an example. Zechariah 14 describes the coming of Messiah to defend Jerusalem. Verse 4, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is a picture of Christ's feet on the Mount of Olives. Let me read to you from our dear brother John Calvin. He does not here promise a miracle such as even the ignorant might conceive to be literal. The interpretation is that God's power would be so remarkable in the deliverance of his church as though or as if God manifested himself in a visible form and reviewed the battle from the top of the mountain. I want you to notice several things. First of all, Calvin, who was amillennial, I say was, he's not now. Um, He was amillennial. He's now very premillennial. He ignores the context of Israel and he ignores and he makes Israel the church. That is superimposing something on this text that's not there anywhere. The second thing to point out, he says it's ignorant to take this prophecy literally. He doesn't say why. This is, with all due respect to our dear brother, who is a hero of the faith, this is one of those times where somebody with a lot of letters after his name, somebody who has a, a high position in the church, simply says, if you don't believe what I believe, you're ignorant. That's not a Bible study method. And third, I want you to know this, he simply chooses to make it figurative. He says, it's as though God came in visible form to review a battle. Look, how specific can Zechariah get? His feet are standing on the Mount of Olives. He gives the place, he talks about the feet. I don't, how much more can you get to make it literal? No, instead, we submit to the text. We're in compliance with the text. This is probably the biggest question that I get. How do you deal with symbolism? How do you know whether you take something literally or whether it's symbolic? And, and I want to take a little digression here and give you some boundaries to help you comply, be in compliance with the text, to be subject to the text, to be submissive to the text, and not make the text of Scripture submissive to you. So here's some boundaries. We'll do it in the form of questions. Is there a good reason to not take the text literally? Is there a good reason? I'll give you an example. Revelation 7, 4 through 8, John refers to 12,000 men from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, totaling 144,000. Is there any reason not to take that literally? No, there's no reason not to. In fact, God's very specific with the numbers. In verse 9, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. Is there any reason not to take that literally? Yeah, Jesus is a man. He's not a lamb. We understand the symbolism of the Lamb of God. Here's the second boundary or second question. Would a literal interpretation involve something impossible or absurd? Would a literal interpretation involve something ridiculous, impossible, absurd? Jeremiah 1.18. God told Jeremiah that Jeremiah is a fortified city, a pillar of iron, a wall of bronze. Obviously, this is intended to represent the role Jeremiah was to have in standing against the unfaithful people of Judah. Isaiah 55, 12, God proclaims that someday when Israel is at peace, the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Does that mean we've suddenly been transported to Narnia or to Middle Earth in which inanimate objects literally come alive? No, this is explained by Romans eight twenty one that the creation is subject to death and decay because of the sin of men, but someday God will set the creation free And there's a personification. It's as if the trees are clapping their hands. Now, when we get to the millennial kingdom and we go to the clapping hand tree forest, then I'll say I was wrong about that. But if a literal interpretation involves something impossible or absurd, then of course you go with the the symbolism. Here's a third question. Would a literal interpretation require sin or immorality? And the most 
classic example of this question of a literal interpretation requiring sin would be in John 6. Jesus said to follow him, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's clearly figurative. It would be immoral to actually do that. And does the, here's a fourth question. Does the figure of speech have an explanation nearby? Is there an explanation? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-15, Paul speaks of those who fall asleep. What does he mean by this? Verse 16, that they die. And so there's an explanation. We went through a moment ago some of the armor of God listed in Ephesians 6. That's a beautiful passage and it's all explained right there. For example, the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. So there's an explanation there. So hopefully that helps you a little bit with, with symbolism. They're very simple questions to ask of a passage. Let me give you a sixth principle in our seven C's. The principle of coexistence. The principle of coexistence. And this is so important, so key for you to grasp because it's a, a big part of many prophecies in our Old Testament. The principle of coexistence allows for near and far fulfillments of single prophecies, but not always looking for some sort of double meaning. It's not always there, but the rest of Scripture helps you understand that there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And there's numbers of examples of this. I'll, I'll give you a couple. Probably the most famous, Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, what's notable about this is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself read this text aloud in the synagogue in Nazareth as recorded in Luke 4. And he proclaimed that the prophecy was fulfilled in him that day, that exact day. But what's important is that he stopped reading right before and the day of vengeance of our God. Christ fulfilled everything up to that moment during his first coming, but his second coming hadn't happened yet. And so he stopped at exactly the right place. Another famous example, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. This is clearly the first coming of Christ. Merry Christmas in August. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Clearly the second coming of Christ. You have a near fulfillment and a far Daniel 9, 24 through 27, all in one prophecy foretells the coming of the Messiah to die, to be cut off and have nothing. In verse 26, and the coming of Antichrist, which hasn't happened yet, and the judgment of Antichrist, which Revelation 20 says happens at the return of Christ. All bound up together. Beginning in Joel 2, 28, you have the prophecy of God pouring out His Spirit upon all mankind Sons and daughters prophesying, old men dreaming dreams, young men seeing visions, putting wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke, the sun turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of Yahweh. Peter said in his Pentecost sermon that the spirit indwelling of the apostles being witnessed by so many in Jerusalem was fulfilling that prophecy. But clearly the moon wasn't turning to blood. Every single Jew wasn't seeing visions and dreaming dreams in the Lord. That's indicative of the great tribulation. That's indicative of the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon Israel at the end of that time and into the millennial reign of Christ. And so it's imperative to not oversimplify when you see something that seems like this sounds like the first coming of Christ, but it also sort of sounds like the second. What does that mean? It's the first and the second. And you put it in there. What, what is... What is the reason for that? Well, the best I can speculate is that the church age is essentially a mystery in the Old Testament. And inserted between those two things are the age we're in now. And so that would be a good reason for it. But there's also a, a, a bigger reason. When Christ came to earth, he offered himself as the king. 
It was a genuine, real offer to Israel. He offered himself to Israel. Israel had the option to say, you are our king. We will repent of our sins. We will receive you as our Lord and as our king. We will have you rule over us because we're repenting, spiritually speaking. And he would have brought the kingdom in. And the Old Testament would be vindicated that all those prophecies that seemed to be butted up against each other would then all happen. Now in God's plan, that wasn't his sovereign decree, but it was a real, genuine offer. One more principle in our seven C's, the principle of caution. The principle of caution. And I need to use another technical word here, but it's necessary. There is to be caution specifically in the field of typology. Typology, the existence of prefigures or foreshadowings which point to the more important New Testament truths. And you're familiar with typology. Maybe you don't know the word, but, but you've heard of Adam being the first Adam, Jesus, the second Adam. David and Jesus are compared. The Mosaic Covenant, the New Covenant, the feasts of Israel, the work of Christ, and so forth. The caution comes in identifying those types. And I'll I'll explain why in a minute. But first of all, some types are very openly identified with the Greek word from which we get type, tupas, uh, or a similar word, skia, which just means shadow. For example, Romans 5.14, Adam was a type of Christ, a foreshadowing. Hebrews 10.1, the law of Moses was a shadow of the better new covenant. 1 Peter 3.20 and 21, Noah's ark was a type which corresponds to baptism. There are other clear connections without the explicit wording. For example, Passover is clearly linked to Christ in 1 Corinthians 5.7. In Matthew chapter 2, Israel being called out of Egypt, Israel's captivity are linked inextricably to events in Christ's life. And so the scriptures are very clear about these. But here's where, and we can argue about how many types there are, and that's totally fine. But here's where we cross a line that you can't cross. The type, the foreshadowing, never loses its own original significance and meaning once the New Testament is written. Adam is still Adam. He didn't cease to be significant as the first man and the federal head of humanity. The law of Moses never ceased to be good. It just, it just has been replaced, but it never ceased to be good. The theological significance of God saving Noah and making a covenant with Noah, that didn't cease to have meaning. It certainly didn't change in meaning, which Peter compared when Peter compared Noah's ark to baptism. In other words, the Old Testament isn't a just vast storehouse of types waiting to be transformed into whatever the reader says it is. This is what's called, and here's why I bring this up, what's called typological or typological interpretation. I want to quote from who I think is really the leading dispensational theologian today, and that is Michael Vlock, and he explains this. The Old Testament is viewed as a vast landscape of inferior types that lose significance with the coming of Jesus. Typological interpretation leads to removal of the significance of matters like national Israel, land, and physical blessings. In other words, typological interpretation or typological interpretation actually changes the Bible's storyline. That's pretty serious. That's something I don't want to mess with. An Old Testament type can be fulfilled in Christ without losing its own significance. Let me give you my favorite example. That is Passover. Passover was the annual celebration of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, commanded in Exodus 12. In 1 Corinthians 5-7, we see a connection between Christ and Passover. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, also was sacrificed. Passover is a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ. Jesus represents the fullness of all that Passover was meant to convey, that the judgment of God, the wrath of God, has passed over you because of Christ. Colossians 2.17 says that Jesus is the substance. He's the reality of all the feasts of Israel. And it's true that because of Christ, we no longer celebrate Passover. But consider this. Luke twenty two fifteen. Jesus said to his disciples, and he's in the upper room here, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat again eat it 
until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Yes, Jesus is the ultimate ideal of the Passover, but a real Passover meal will be served in the coming kingdom because the significance didn't stop. Michael Vlock defends the caution of misusing typology when he writes, quote, fulfillment in Jesus does not always mean evaporation of the Old Testament reality. Now, I know we went deeply into some details there. It's just important to me. The Old Testament is 75% of our Bible. I want you to be able to read it with the richness that it was intended for you to understand. But let me put these seven principles a, a different way that I think will help you synthesize and boil down how you the average Christian just trying to understand the revelation of the Scripture, how you're to understand prophecy. So I'll I'll give you these seven again, just with a a very boiled-down version. The principle of consistency. Don't cherry-pick. How about that? Don't cherry-pick prophecies that you want to spiritualize. Uh Uh-oh, my theological system doesn't say that that, uh, Israel still exists, so Israel now has to become the church. No, don't cherry-pick. Be consistent. The principle of comparison. The principle of comparison says that the more prophecy you read, the more you will see overlap in one single story. Or if I could put it this way, how does this portion of Scripture, how does this uh, Jeremiah 25, how does this fit into the overall scope of God's redemptive plan? Always ask that question. The principle of conformity. The prophecy has one single interpretation with applications to redemptive history into my life. How, how, what do I mean by that? You're asking of the text, what does this mean? What's the interpretation? And you're asking of yourself, what am I going to do about this? How am I going to treat those around me with more love uh, from this morning? How am I going to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me in light of the fact of what I just read in Jeremiah 25? The principle of correlation. Figures of speech always point to something literal. You're always asking the question, what is that literal thing? The principle of compliance. Don't just decide something is symbolic. I, I hate to break it to all the interpreters in church history, but no matter how educated they are, them simply saying the words, this is symbolic, doesn't actually make it symbolic. I can say the words, I am a tomato, and that doesn't do anything. The principle of coexistence. Prophecies may have a near and a far fulfillment, maybe a partial fulfillment to be completed later. Look for it and and see it. And then the principle of caution. This is the main issue. We don't have a right to simply say Israel is now the church. We don't have a right to say the land promises to Israel have a greater fulfillment in Christ and in the inheritance of the new covenant. If you cannot come to a theological conclusion from Scripture alone, then that theological conclusion should be suspect. If it must be explained in high and lofty terms that leaves your head spinning and going, well, that guy's really smart and he got invited to do this lecture, so he must be right and I just have to figure it out, then be suspicious. Let me let some theologians speak to the issue of how to read Old Testament prophecies. One theologian writes this, and what they're all going to say in summary Before I say it, they're all going to say that if you read the Bible at face value, you will be premillennial. Here's the first theologian. He says this, The Old Testament prophecies, if literally interpreted, cannot be regarded as having been fulfilled or being capable of fulfillment in this age. They have to be fulfilled later. Another theologian said this, Now we must frankly admit that the literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us just such a picture of an earthly reign of Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. And yet a third theologian writes, It is generally agreed that if the prophecies are taken literally, they do foretell a restoration of the nation of Israel in the land of Palestine with the Jews having a prominent place in that kingdom and ruling over other nations. Now, I've taught you this before. Quoting theologians does not prove truth. So I didn't prove anything theologically to you. I did prove something logically to you, though. Those were the words in order of O.T. Alice, Floyd E. Hamilton, and Lorraine Baitner. None of them are premillennial. Two are millennial and one postmillennial. But they all say if you simply read the Old Testament literally, you'll be premillennial. 
I appreciate the laughter. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Well, let me finish up our time for just a, a few minutes what I'll call the appeal of premillennialism. I didn't learn the word premillennial until I was in my 20s. And then I found out I've been premillennial since I was eight years old, I suppose, because I just read the Bible and believed it. I told someone recently that Grace Bible Church is the only church in the world I would preach a series this detailed on something that many would see as a secondary issue, that is eschatology, study of the end times. And eschatology is not a salvation issue, but there are many things that are important that aren't salvation issues. But it is a Christian living issue. It's absolutely a, a sanctification issue because it speaks to how the average ordinary Christian, the vast majority of us, and, and my favorite Christian, the, the ordinary Christian, how we interact with the truth of Scripture and how this impacts our lives. And so I'd like to finish our time talking to you about the appeal or the, the attractiveness of premillennialism in terms of how it impacts your ability to understand the revelation of God. And I'll just give you about three appeals. First of all, there's the appeal of simplicity. Of simplicity. Any book of the Bible may be approached the same way, whether it's a clear narrative story like Genesis or the figurative language found all over Song of Solomon. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to go, well, I'm just skipping that one because it seems to have lots of figures of speech. There's lots of gardens and vines and things like that, and I don't know what that means. You don't have to ask the question, okay, what are my rules of interpretation for this passage? I have to leave for work in 20 minutes. I don't have time to figure out a hermeneutic depending on where I am in the Bible. Any subject in theology can use the same interpretive method without having to switch to a figurative hermeneutic when studying Israel, the church, or eschatology. You don't have to say, "Uh uh-oh, I can't understand this. I have to find somebody who tells me how to read this, how to understand it. So there's the appeal of simplicity. You can read your Bible, Genesis to Revelation, with the same lens, and that is the lens of interpreting things literally, historically, grammatically. The second appeal I'll call the, the appeal of visibility. The appeal of visibility. Premillennialism doesn't require you to believe in implied or alleged biblical covenants. Covenants like redemption, grace, and works. Those are pillars of covenant theology, which is strongly interwoven with amillennialism. Covenants made in, eternal, in eternity past, which at best are assumed, at best are inferred, but not widely accepted with persuasive biblical evidence. A, a premillennial hermeneutic allows you to simply read the Bible and take it at face value and understand what it says. Both of my grandfathers were pastors and my grandfather on my mother's side, back in his day and in the Midwest, they, they had Bible colleges and you went for 12 months. That's like going to a week of basic training and then going, into, going to war. So he had 12 months of very basic Bible knowledge. But he read the Bible so frequently. He read the Bible every year, multiple times through. And by the time I talked to him, basically an uneducated man, by the time I talked to him when he was an old man and I was a kid, that guy could explain the Bible. He could explain the cover off of it. Why? Because he didn't know any other way to read it except literally. And I'll give you this last one, the appeal of familiarity. The appeal of familiarity. Premillennialism doesn't require the assistance of experts without whom you could never reach the so-called correct conclusion without them first explaining the theological lens that you have to use. Instead, you may be familiar with the scripture of your own accord. And as I explained last time, that this doesn't negate the place of the Bible teacher, but ultimately the hermeneutics that I use to compact uh, hours and hours of study into about an hour are the same Bible study methods you can freely use. The premillennialist doesn't have the sense that he or she has to rely on theologians alone to truly know the redemptive storyline of the Bible. This is why, by the way, some excellent books on premillennial theology have been written by laymen, people with no formal training, because they simply did a good job of taking the Bible at face value. They spent time doing that. In fact, I'd like to let one of those authors have the last word tonight. 
In 2021, a man by the name of Bob Chadwick published a book called Millennial Kingdom of God on Planet Earth. Chadwick is not a formally trained theologian. He was an attorney, and before that, he retired from the United States Marine Corps as a brigadier general. His book is direct and to the point, and if you read it, it reads something like a cross between a legal document and a military mission briefing. It's the only book I've ever read where the whole thing is all in bold. Everything. (laughs) He wrote the book at the age of 91 after having read through the Bible countless times and seeing the storyline of the Bible. Let me just give you a, a sample, and then we'll let Mr. Chadwick have the last word tonight. I'll give you an example. In his chapter on the duration of the millennial kingdom, he quotes Revelation 20, verse 4, to show that the kingdom will last 1,000 years. And then he makes the following historical observations. Quote, The disciples believed that at Jesus' second coming, he would establish his messianic millennial kingdom of God, the Son, for 1,000 years. The church of Jesus Christ at Pentecost believed that. The revelation of the resurrected Jesus Christ made known to the Apostle John recorded not only once, not only twice, not only three times, not only four times, not only five times, but six times the Jesus coming kingdom on planet earth would last 1,000 years. I leave you tonight with the gruff and direct words of Brigadier General Robert Chadwick of the United States Marine Corps. The current author believes that all Scripture is inspired by the Lord God Almighty and that the Lord God, through His Holy Spirit, has the ability to say what He means and to mean what He says, period. (laughs) How do you say it any simpler than that? But he's very, very evangelistic and he closes his book with a, a soft tone of a genuine believer in Christ and he says, what you believe about Bible prophecy has no effect on where you're going to spend eternity. It's not related to your justification but it has an immediate impact upon your sanctification. And he closes with this, upon how you walk before the Lord in this life. Come, Lord Jesus, our blessed hope. He didn't need any special training. He just read his Bible and took it at face value. Never let it be said that at Grace Bible Church, we separate you from the word of God. It's just the opposite. Puts you together with the word. Come, Lord Jesus, our blessed hope. Let's pray together. Our Father, what a, what a tremendous word you've given us. Scholars spend lifetimes studying the depths of the riches of your word. Its riches are endless. Its depths are beyond measure. We'll spend eternity still trying to grasp the glories of a Bible that we can hold in our hands. And yet a five-year-old who has just learned to read basic words can open his Bible and learn that there is sin in the world, but that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And that Jesus died on the cross to make payment for that sin. And that Jesus is coming back again and he will rule this earth. A child reading the Bible would come to those conclusions because you have designed the Bible to elude the grasp of the worldly wise and yet to be grasped by those who are simple in mind and who would simply believe you and believe your word. Oh, we thank you for a Bible. We thank you for a word by which we have not been left to guess what you require of us. We have not been left to guess who you are. We have not been left to guess the character of our Savior. We have not been left to guess what happens next. We already know what happens next. He will come for us and then we will return with him. And he will set up his kingdom on this earth and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Thank you for this word which has told us the end from the beginning. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.